Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and be mocked, and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him, with, to her with her sons kneeling. Before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You may drink my cup, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jer Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The king rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, One Ancient Hope. Uh, my name is Chris Sutton. If you haven't been here, I'm an elder at One Ancient Hope. And I'm grateful to be here today to proclaim God's word from this passage in Matthew 20. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. So in this text that you just heard, Jesus has been making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's been teaching and healing in giving warnings about his impending death. In this text, he's made it south to the area around Jericho at this point, and now he's getting ready to head down to Jerusalem. He pulls his disciples aside for the third time. He's been doing this, and he warns them of his coming death. He says he will be condemned to death. He will be mocked, he'll be flogged, he'll be crucified, and he'll be raised again. That's all in this first first passage we just read, and this will happen as he's going down to Jerusalem. Remember that Jerusalem was the royal city for David, 
and for all the old kings in Israel. But it still is the royal city, even though it has been occupied and ruled by people who aren't interested in the God that David worshipped. He also calls himself the Son of God, which would have pointed people who knew the scriptures to Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days is a figure in white clothes. He sits on a throne of fire that's actually sending out fire from the throne, and he is going to be the judge of multitudes of people. Cross-references with other scriptures, and this is an image of God in the Old Testament. It's powerful imagery, but right after that, uh, there's some language about the beasts. Uh, So the beasts are destroyed, and the dominion is taken away from destructive empires who have been in opposition to God's rule. Then we hear that there there came one like a son of man who was presented to the Ancient of Days, and he was given an everlasting kingdom and dominion with all people worshiping him. So it's really striking imagery. And in Revelation 1, John talks about the Son of Man in terms uh, that sound a lot like the Ancient of Days in Daniel. The Son of Man is revealed as Christ, who is God, in Revelation. He's not calling himself the Son of Man lightly or flippantly. He's telling them who he is by tying himself to a key text in their scriptures. He's telling them that he is the king over all. And he's telling them that he's going to suffer, which would point them to texts like Isaiah 53. So we have the Son of Man who is clearly powerful and kingly, and he's going to suffer and die. The first time Jesus warns of his death, Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. The second time, there's no rebuke, but it says that the disciples were distressed after he predicted his death. So the third time's the charm, right? The disciples hear about his suffering and death and resurrection, and their natural reaction is to mourn the coming disaster, maybe rejoice in his resurrection, hopefully, right? Predicting the future isn't easy, and almost no one gets it right. Consider our pollsters in uh, political situations and weather forecasters. They get close, but they don't, get the, they don't always get the future right. But here is their leader predicting his coming death, and they aren't pushing back this time. They get that what he is saying is a prediction about his own death and resurrection, but we'll find there is still something missing. So what do they know at this point? He is the son of man, which is a meaningful term to them from Daniel 7. He'll be mocked and he'll suffer like in Isaiah 53. Then he'll die and he'll be raised again. But if he can die and come back to life, his kingdom is going to be different from the Old Testament kings in Judah and Israel. And his kingdom will be better than the Roman government because the Roman leaders die and even the emperor dies and he doesn't come back. They are going, they also see him going up to the royal city of David at this point. They're at Jericho. Jericho's, I don't know, almost 1,000 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is well above, I don't know, it's like 2,000 feet above sea level. So he's literally going up to the royal city. 
What happens when a king goes up to the royal city? He should be welcomed with great celebration. And he should have a coronation. He should have an enthronement ceremony. But according to Jesus and his prediction, he isn't going to get a coronation, like we'll see with King Charles III in May of this year. His coronation and his enthronement are going to look different, maybe a lot different. So they know of his death, but it isn't real for them yet. How do you prepare for the horrible death of someone who is young and vibrant, someone who's right in front of you proclaiming the words of life? But even more than not fully understanding his war- but even more than not fully understanding his warning, their desires or wants aren't formed into the desires of someone in this new kingdom yet. There's another kingdom that has twisted and malformed their desires and their understanding of power and position. Let's go further in the story now. Considering they have some knowledge and understanding that he is the one, he's the son of man that he'll suffer, die, be raised again to new life, What is it that the disciples want? What do they want to happen? What kind of kingdom do they think Jesus is bringing? The disciples, James and John, rightfully known as the sons of thunder, decided to go to Jesus with their mom to make a request of him. The sons are right there, but the mom does the talking. Her name is likely Salome, but she isn't named in this version of the story. These three go to Jesus apart from the rest of the disciples. And Salome kneels before Jesus and asks for a favor. This is a recognition of who Jesus is, knowing that he has power. She's recognizing that his kingdom is real and is coming. And she makes a request of Jesus, and Jesus' response is one of the most powerful questions we have. What do you want? Notice that he doesn't commit to giving what is going to be asked. Uh, when you think about Queen Esther going before King Ahasuerus, he, he says, even up to half my kingdom. So Jesus doesn't make a preemptive agreement to it, which is a wise thing to do. Um, but he also, he doesn't commit to giving them what they're going to ask, but he also doesn't shut them down. They want something, and he will hear them out for their good. So she asks him to say that James and John will get to sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom. Being at someone's right hand and left hand means that you're elevated up to that position. It doesn't give you the same power as that person, but it gives you power in relation to that particular person. So it it elevates you. In Matthew 19, Jesus had just said, I mean, one chapter before this, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus just said this. So Jesus had given them a high and important place literally a position of rule and authority with the 12 tribes of Israel. And now two of them want to be further elevated, lifted up to the highest place, almost on par with the king of kings, the creator of all things. But not all the disciples, just two of them. 
This is how the world works. Trying to get power, attempting to gain position at the expense of others, and without considering the cost. Gaining power without cost is appealing in our world, and that is what people generally want in their default state. And getting high position at the expense of others is how this world's kingdom works. James and John and Salome, they know what they're doing, and they're asking for it without the other ten knowing about it. And notice that Salome just asks Jesus to say, to say that, knowing that his words are powerful and effective, and that just saying so will make it happen. She knows something about the true king. She's been in his presence for a long time here. She is seeing and believing Jesus, but there's still something off. They are seeking their own power and position over and against the other ten. After they had already been given their rightful places in the kingdom in Matthew 19, what is Jesus' response? In this situation, wouldn't many of us go after James and John and Salome? Maybe chew them out a bit? Condemn them for their reckless, selfish request? Maybe shame them a bit to put them down? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus answers them graciously and directly and truthfully, saying, you don't know what you're asking. They know technically what they're asking for, but they don't know the price that's going to be paid. The high price is here. Can you drink my cup? Psalm 78 uses some of this imagery just as kind of a reference point. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Sometimes a cup is used in terms of blessing, sometimes it's in terms of justice and judgment. So this, the cup here is an image of judgment and justice. Can you drink my cup? Do you want to drink that sour wine that Jesus drank up on the cross? Can you pay the price that Jesus is going to pay? Have you counted the cost? Of course, the brothers are highly confident and overconfident. We are able, they declare. This sounds about right for the young and zealous sons of thunder. Jesus does give them a forewarning that his disciples, he says, they will drink, you will drink my cup. They will suffer and they will pay a price. In 1 Peter 4.13, it says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're not bearing the sins of the world as we participate in Christ's sufferings, but we share in his sufferings like James and John are going to do as they follow Jesus. Now, sitting on the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom is something that the Father will determine. Augustine here says that Jesus is speaking from his human nature, which helps make sense of this interaction between Jesus and his Father. Notice that there isn't anger or retaliation here. He knows how they're formed because he formed them. And he is going to walk alongside them, teaching and instructing and pointing them to the truth. This request seeks James and John's good over and against the other ten disciples. They are asking for something more than the good thing that Jesus had already promised them. 
Now the other ten disciples get wind of what James and John were up to. And how do they respond? They're indignant and they're irritated. There's nothing like seeing pride in someone else, seeing pride in another person, to have it reveal the pride in your own heart. There's nothing like that. It's, it's, uh, that's where people typically see it, is in someone else, and that's how it gets revealed. C.S. Lewis points this out really well in his chapter on pride in mere Christianity. That chapter is well worth a read. So the ten disciples are maybe indignant that the two were even asking, but they might have just wanted the same thing, and they're irritated that James and John beat him to the punch. The text doesn't exactly say. You can speculate about the motivations there, but they're indignant and they're riled up as a result. So what do you want is still the question. Do you want power and position? Do you want them without paying the cost? Jesus' kingdom doesn't work like the world's systems. So trying to get power for a few at the expense of others doesn't work in Jesus' new world. Jesus is showing them how his kingdom works here. Now he calls the 12 disciples together to go to the heart of the matter. And this is just following the text here. He has seen their request and he knows where they are going and he's going to reorient them. The Gentile rulers lord it over their people, he says, and they exercise authority referring to their great ones. They put heavy burdens on people. They force them into servitude. They tax them too hard. Maybe they control and manipulate them. And we get sort of a shift in the text here. And Jesus, this is what Jesus says now. This is kind of a pivotal piece. It shall not be so among you. What they're going after is wrong. They're modeling what they want after the, king, after the kingdoms of the world. They're following what he calls the Gentile rulers here. It shall not be so among you. You're not to live in this way. When you have, a, when you have authority, you aren't to lord it over others. Authority is a real thing. Power and control are real things, and you can use them well or you can use them poorly but you aren't to lord it over people, to manipulate and control them, to extract good things for yourself at the expense of others' well-being is a problem. And then it says, this text actually uses the word, in Greek, it uses the word want four times. So what do you want? And then right here it says, if you want to be great, if you want to be great, the ESV uses slightly different wording, if you would, I think is the word they use there. If you want to be great, and this word in Greek, great, is it's the same word as where we get mega or large. If you want to be mega, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, and the root word here is where we get proto or beginning or first. If you want to be proto, be like a slave or a bondservant. This is strong language. And he's using low social status to convey what it means to be a Christ follower. This language might bother you. And why would Jesus be telling them to become like a servant? By the way, the word here, servant, is diakonos. That should sound like a familiar word. Or a slave, doulos, if you're familiar with that. If they want power and position, if they want power and position in the kingdom, because this is how Jesus' kingdom works. 
Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's setting himself as the model and the image, and he's going to demonstrate it. He has demonstrated it. He's going to demonstrate it ultimately with his life. The king and creator of all things will give up his power and position. Consider a piece of Philippians 2 that captures this well. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And this is doulos here. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ is the prototype, or the forerunner here. He models this in his incarnation. And he comes to serve his people and give up his own life for the ransom of many. At the beginning of Romans 1, at the start, this is what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We read over servant, but he's using that word doulos here, which is closer to our word slave. In older English, it would have been like bondservant, but we're not as familiar with that terminology. Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus. Paul is not afraid to use this language for himself and for Jesus Christ. Knowing that he's identifying with a low social status for the sake of the kingdom like Jesus did. In all this, notice the kindness of Jesus. He has, not, he has told them to not lord it over others. By the way, uh, Lord here is, we, sometimes we sing a song, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. So Kyrie is Lord, and the Old Testament trans, uh, translates Yahweh, which is the personal name of God in the Septuagint, it translates it to Kyrios or Kyrie. So this is, this is uh, that same, so once again, that title can you, can, you can be a good Lord and you can, be, uh, you can be someone who lords it over people. And we know that expression in English. Um, <clears throat> he has told them not to lord it over others, but to give up their own control for the sake of serving others in the kingdom. So again, what do you want? Think about Paul in Romans 2. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He doesn't say not to seek those things, glory, honor, and immortality. He says to seek them by patience in well-doing. He contrasts that, he contrasts that good person with those who are self-seeking, disobedient, and unrighteous. James and John were self-seeking in this Matthew story. And Jesus won't let them stay there. Because he loves, because love wills the best of the other person. It wills the best for the other person. And Jesus loves his disciples. And love includes speaking the truth to your friends. Giving your life as a ransom implies sacrifice and one life substituting for another life. Jesus is saying, my life for yours. He's not self-seeking. He's seeking the good of the other. 
James and John were saying, I want more power and position, but at your expense, while not understanding the cost. It shall not be so among you. This is not how my kingdom works. My kingdom is different and better than those who lord it over their subjects. I'm going to step back for just a second here. I'm using a trio of words, power, authority, and control. And in this, I'm not drawing from modern theories around those words. I'm just using them in kind of their basic sense. Um, These three words point to a reality in our lives. Power, authority, and control can be used well and it can be used destructively. Our culture is very concerned about authority in general, and sometimes authority is treated as something fundamentally bad, and I would encourage you not to think in that way. You can use it well, and you can use it poorly. Um, You can use it to God's glory, or you can abuse it for your own selfish benefit. Imagine a captain of a ship. The captain of the ship controls where that ship goes. He keeps it off the rocks. And that's a good thing. If he shirks his duty, if he uh, uses it poorly, then that could be a bad thing. Um, Also, just thinking about service in particular, right now there's 11 people in this congregation who are going through training for our service committees. And um, they're training in theology, Presbyterian thought, and also in practice, like what, what practically will these roles do? They're training to be servants in the church here. Pray for them, talk to them, come alongside of them, listen to them, consider helping them, and uh, consider helping them serve at One Ancient Hope. This is really important, and uh, this is going to affect the life of the church in really good ways. So consider those 11 people and the work that they're going through at this point. So now let's go back to the text. Um, Let's look at some other examples of how people answer the question of what do you want? And, And what is the cost when you sacrifice for the good of others? Our Old Testament passage was parts of Esther 4 and 5. This passage is fitting because Queen Esther started out not wanting to speak up. Go read the text. She doesn't want to speak up because a fear for her life. And that's an understandable fear. She has some conversations with Mordecai. And, uh, and in those conversations with Mordecai, she decides to go before the king and uh, suffer the consequences. So Mordecai did have to push her a little bit. She responds. She gets an audience with the king to make her case for her people. She presents herself to the king at great risk to her life, knowing that if I perish, I perish. Now, remember in the text, what did the king say to her? He said, you can have anything, even up to half my kingdom. He put the offer of power and money and control in front of her, And she doesn't choose that. She chooses her people. She chooses the protection of other people's lives. She gets to answer the question of what do you want or what do you desire or what do you wish for? The rest of this story is dramatic. It's well told. 
You should go and read it later. Uh, it's well worth reading periodically to hear more about Haman and Mordecai and Esther and King Ahasuerus. So now let's flip the wording around. It shall be so among you, seeking the good of the people you are entrusted with. It shall be so among you. What about you? Who are you serving out of love? Maybe it's your young or adult kids. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe some people at church or at work or elsewhere. You fill in the context. I'll go to another example here. Solomon, in 1 Kings 3, right after he becomes king, he's, he's lacking in wisdom. And you can read the chapter before, and I think you can see the lack of wisdom, actually. And he recognizes that. And uh, when God asks him what he wants, this is what Solomon uh, answers with. Give your, servants, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? He could have asked for money. He could have asked for victory in battle. But he instead asked to be able to discern between good and evil for the sake of the people he was entrusted with. And the text actually focuses it really clearly there. He's thinking about how does he lead and serve the people that he's entrusted with? So when you seek wisdom in all the ways that you know and love at church and at work and at home and all the different contexts you're in, so when you seek wisdom in all the ways you know and love the world and you want to discern good from evil, it shall be so among you. This is how the kingdom of God works. When you're presented with what do you want, do you build up your own honor and dignity at someone else's expense? Or will you use God, your God-given strength, your attention, your ability for the sake of others to serve them? Is it your life for mine or my life for yours? Let's finish with the third section of the text. And this is about the two blind men sitting alongside the road as Jesus walks by. His name is preceding him at this point in his ministry. The two shout out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord here is the Kyrie that we talked about. It gets translated to the Lord. Uh, uh, the Old Testament Yahweh gets translated to this particular word. They're invoking the... If, if, if they're Jewish people and they're in, their, in that community of faith, they are invoking the personal name of God at this point. They are calling him the son of David as well. They know that he is the king in the line of David, a true descendant of the true king of Israel. They are near the bottom of the social ladder of their day. They don't have seeing eye dogs to help them out. They don't have much agency in their society. Maybe they have some family caring for them. Hopefully they did. But they don't have power and they don't have standing in their society. They just have a crowd telling them to shut up, be quiet. They aren't deterred, but they shout louder. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
they don't have much to lose here, and they know who Jesus is, and they're going for it. They see him the most clearly, even though, even though they don't have physical eyesight. Notice that Jesus answers to the titles of Lord and Son of David. This is appropriate. He's merciful and he's compassionate, responding to their cry. So how they addressed the King of Kings, the creator and sustainer of all things is appropriate, and he answers them. They come boldly before Jesus, like Esther came boldly before King Ahasuerus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? This is one of the most expansive questions available to us. And notice that this is the same question that was asked earlier in the text. It's the same want word in Greek. What do you want me to do for you? It's the same uh, question that Jesus asked of Salome and her sons. So do you ask for power and position that's not yours to have? Do you ask for wealth? Do you ask for wisdom? Do you hide at the expense of your people? Or do you go before the king and resist evil to protect their lives? These two blind men know that he's the creator. They know that they are his creatures. They have suffered socially and physically as long as they have been without sight. In that society, they would have suffered. But they also know that because they're creatures, they were designed in a particular way to be whole and thriving to the glory of God. And by the way, when you say creatures, it's not any sort of hidden meaning. It's just the distinction between the creator and the creature. It's knowing that you're in relation to the creator. So what do they ask for? They ask to be restored in the obvious way that their bodies were broken. They aren't asking for eagle's eyes or some sort of superpower that would let them be stronger than everyone else around them. They're asking for restoration of one of the most basic faculties that we rely on every day. Jesus offered his life as a ransom, and he came to restore his people, heart and mind, body and soul. This isn't a name it and claim it scheme. I know, and many of you know, what it's like to have some part of your body, your heart, or your mind broken. Some of you from a young age and some of you older. And many of you long for healing. What doesn't happen in this life will certainly be made whole in the new creation. God knows what you need, and he's faithful in his time. So what do they do as a, res as a result? They follow the king. They join in the throng of followers on their way to the royal city with the king. So one ancient hope, what do you want? James and John had been living face to face with Jesus. He had just promised them an amazing inheritance along with the other 10 disciples. And they had the opportunity to say what they wanted. They wanted more power and position to be above the other disciples. The blind men who didn't have access to Jesus, they're sitting along the side of the road. They recognized him fully without physical sight, and they asked for restoration to make their bodies whole again. What a stark contrast between these two kinds of wants and desires in this story. But the prideful request of the two is met with gentleness 
and instruction. So there is hope for you if this is you. If you're wondering if you have pride, assume that you do. It's the most basic form of our fallen condition. And C.S. Lewis makes a clear case for this in Mere Christianity. It's, it's, a, it's a good read. And it's, pride tends to hide itself behind other issues, so it's actually harder to detect than other types of vices. But assume that you have it. Now, the request for restoration is met with recovery of sight. But they could already see Jesus. So the physical sight was aligning their bodies with the heart reality already in their lives. We may not get restoration of our bodies in this life, even with medicine and surgery and therapy and all of the technological advances we have. We may not get that. And as we get older, uh, the likelihood goes down and down. (laughs) But the new world that Jesus talks about that we see in parts of Matthew and at the end of Revelation is coming. What we don't have now will be restored to us in the new creation. Seeing isn't only about physical sight, although physical sight is really important. So we should attend to what we really want, the desire to be face-to-face again with Jesus without shame. What will satisfy us in the end is being fully in Jesus' presence without hiding from him looking in his face, knowing his life was made a ransom for ours. James and John wanted more authority than what they had been given and to be at the right and left hands of Jesus. But Jesus' coronation involved a crown of thorns, thorns pressed into his head and ended in his death hanging from a cross, one of the most humiliating ways to die. And who was at his right and left sides? The two thieves being crucified with him. Did James and John really understand the cost of power and high position? Could they drink his cup in the same way that he did? At this point, they did understand. At this point, they understand that being a servant is the path to glory. At this point, did they understand that being a servant is the path to glory, honor, and immortality, as Paul put it? Now, thanks be to God that the actual end of the story doesn't end with his death on a cross. But instead, as Jesus says, he will be raised on the third day. In a couple of weeks, we'll hear about the rest of this story. Come back in, a couple, in the next couple of weeks for sure. As we consider what we want This shouldn't turn into a crushing burden. But as we live before God, our wants and our desires will be shaped more into his likeness. As we live in the word, listening to the spirit of God and walking faithfully in our community. We share in the sufferings of Christ, as Peter said, but thank God we don't have to bear the consequences of sin like Jesus did when he took our sins on the cross. Instead, we get Christ's righteousness, a a righteousness that makes us whole and undivided before God. And we gain this right standing before God when we trust that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So one ancient hope, what do we want? 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on us. We entrust our lives to you, the only true God. You took our sin and our shame on yourself when you died on the cross. This is our hope. Teach us to listen to your instruction, which is lovingly orienting us toward, more toward your kingdom. And in the coming weeks, we anticipate the rest of your glorious story beyond the cross. Amen.